Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. So here we are back again, Pat. Time for another podcast. That's right. Out in the garage this week, I'm Mark Richards. And of course, as always, the esteemed Pat Woodward. Happy to be here. And we've got some great guests today on an Oktoberfest episode. We have Jamie Gentry. Hi, guys. Thanks for the invitation. And he is a home brewer and Halloween expert. We'll get more into that later. And very thankful to have with us today, Chris Davison. How's it going, Mark? I'm doing great. And Chris is the brewer over at Wolf's Ridge. Yeah, it's great to be here. And a lover of Oktoberfest as well. Mm-hmm. I think that was a requirement to get on the episode. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was the only requirement, wasn't it? Loving metal and Oktoberfest. So I think we want to start off with a history lesson on Oktoberfest. I'll get the ball rolling on that one, right? So the Oktoberfest celebration, which I'm sure everyone has heard of, this massive celebration of beer and food and accordion music that happens this time of year in Munich, started off actually as a wedding party. So it was a wedding between Ludwig and Therese back in 1810. It was a hell of a wedding. They're still celebrating. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's probably got to be one of the best wedding parties ever that have turned into this uh, party, right? Yeah. I mean, everyone wants to have a good anniversary party. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. You wouldn't forget your anniversary every year because mm-hmm. there's thousands and thousands of people rolling into town and drinking beer and tents, right? You might forget it. Um, the next day. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I think it's millions now, like 15 million or something every year attend. Yeah, yeah. Now, Pat, are you trying to say that it's easier to remember an annual beer fest than your anniversary? <laughs> it sounds like what he's trying to say. Oh. I think you might be drawing the wrong inference from my words. <laughs> but since we're talking about Oktoberfest and beer, though, I think the beer we're going to be talking about later today is not what they were drinking in those early Oktoberfest celebrations. Back in those days in Munich would have been predominantly Dunkel town, I think. So Munich is known for its dark beers mm-hmm. and the style that came to be the main style at Oktoberfest, which we call Merzen, didn't really come around until 1841. And the brewery who uh, developed that, Spaten, is still with us today and still pouring probably millions of uh, liters of beer every year, a lot of those at Oktoberfest. That's amazing. I mean, we got two guys here that are part of breweries in town. Can you imagine your business running 200 years later? I mean, that's... Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, we can only hope. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that either of us will be here to find out. <laughs> well, another interesting factoid about Oktoberfest is most of it happens in September. I don't know how it started becoming called Oktoberfest. I mean, it stretches into... It ends in October. That's true. I think it was before calendars were invented, and they just called it Oktoberfest, and it... Was celebrated. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been. It could have been. It could have been. We might want to fact check that. One. <laughs> the, the Egyptians might want to have something to say about that. Now, has anyone here been to Oktoberfest? Nope. Negative. This is a great question. I've tried a couple times, and a friend of mine who I was going to join there sent me a T-shirt, <laughs> um, which I'm wearing now. That's as close I've gotten. I've been on the grounds, though, in Munich, but not at the time of the year where there was anything going on there. 
Well, it's not the easiest ticket to get, from what I understand. My cousin's husband went to Oktoberfest. You kind of reserve a table at one of these big tents that the Munich breweries put up, but he said the table they could get, you know, their time slot started at 8 in the morning and went until noon or something like that. So that's when they went. They would go to they would get there at 8 and start drinking. And Perfect. If they don't kick you out of your table, then you're probably just falling asleep and hogging up valuable space that someone else could be spending money at. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think 18 hours at the table would be a bit excessive. Just when you're drinking by the leader. You know, right. Like, after a couple, like, you're pretty much done, yeah, I would assume. Done. So. I did a little bit of research into Oktoberfest a couple of years ago because we were starting to roll out our Oktoberfest in a six packs for the first time. And so we were making a lot more of it. And as part of our celebration at Wolfridge, I decided I would buy some Lederhosen and I don't want to half-ass anything. So I wanted like authentic Lederhosen. The really nice ones from Germany tend to be hundreds of dollars. So I found a company that may have still been in Germany. I forget now. Um, it was under $100 for the set, but it was still all leather and well-made. I wanted it to be authentic. And so there's all kinds of like rules. And I think, you know, traditionally the Lederhosen was this garment of the peasant. But then now in modern times, like richer, more well-off people have like, you know, these like velvet down suits and like vests and things. And then other people have more traditional strappy lederhosen like over the shoulder there's different things that go on with the hats and people put different pins and it's part of the tradition is to like have more pins and accoutrement on your hat yeah yeah, different flair (laughs) and so i found this like really big wide-brimmed peasant hat and a pheasant feather which is traditional and then there's different rules about the dirndls that the women wear and which side you tie your bow on one side means you're available and one side means you're taken oh that's um, interesting so, yeah, there's there's a lot of different things that go in, if you know. And I guess um, they, a lot of the reviews and uh, stories that people had put online about attending, like, you know, to not look like an amateur is to not show up in, like, a Halloween costume or not show up in jeans and a shirt because most people do dress up there and you don't want to look kind of like a tourist. So That's a good tip right there in and of itself. Absolutely. So is it Lederhosen or... Nothing. You look like a tourist. I mean, is there any? Is there any in between Lederhosen and you know? There, there probably and is, and you know, and I wasn't finding articles written by Germans in German, so um, that was maybe a foreigner's perspective of Oktoberfest that I was getting. But um, I, I'm sure plenty of people just you know dress a little bit nicer. But you'll see pictures if you start searching on the internet where you know there's tables of people and. Um, traditional garb and then there's like one dude in a white t-shirt like passed out and he just like looks so out of place so i think (laughs) you just don't want to look like real slobby i guess both of those things making him an amateur he's (laughs) passed out and he's in a white t-shirt there you go (laughs) it might be worth saying you know which breweries are actually the munich breweries that can because i think in germany only the breweries in munich can really um serve beer at oktoberfest Mm. and, and and only the six just the yeah, six, yeah. right? Only the six. Yeah, I did read that. And I think you can get all of them maybe here in the States. I would right? say looking at this list, uh, Augustiner, Hackersor, Hofbrau, Lohenbrau, Polliner, and Spaten. I haven't seen Lohenbrau, but if any of you have, let me know because I drank, I've probably had like three cases of Oktoberfest already this year. Yeah. So <laughs> I like to try all the traditional ones, and that's the only one I definitely haven't had so far. Okay. I have not seen it around. I mean... It used to be widely available, but I'm not so sure that that was the Lohenbrau. This was made in Germany. 
that Lohenbrau from our youth might have been like an AB product or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm right. thinking now because, yeah, I also have not seen the Lohenbrau Oktoberfest around anywhere. Right, right. Chris, have you tried all of the other five? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I think as quickly as I could, I started buying them all up in, in July when they start showing up. And it seems early, but, you know, I, honestly, I, I would drink Mertzen year-round if it was available year-round, but it's nice that it's a special treat. And so I really load up on it. I think of the traditional six here, uh, Augustiner is my all-time favorite, and maybe that's my first traditional Oktoberfest that I had as a beer drinker. But all of them are really good. Um, the Hofbrau is great. The Hecker Shore is great. Um, Polliner has two. So they have a Mertzen and a Fest beer, which is the Wiesen, the Golden Wiesen. And both of them are great. I think I preferred the Wiesen of theirs. But, yeah. Yeah, you can't go wrong with any of them, I don't mm-hmm. think. Yeah. I mean, there's there's some slight variations, but I, just, I love the style and I love the, uh, I don't know, I like the history around them. You know, you feel like you're drinking a little bit of, uh, you know, some, some longtime beer history. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Of course, speaking of history, this year is kind of historical in a notorious sort of way, right? Because no Oktoberfest this year, right? Yeah, Yeah, sadly, it's canceled completely. So we're going to just improvise today, I think, right? That's right. So here we are having our own Oktoberfest. And since we all have a passion for metal music to begin with, we thought, what would be better than to choose some German heavy metal bands and somewhat historic ones? That's uh, true. For most to of go our listeners. with such a historic style. Can't go wrong with that, right? German loggers and metal music. Yeah, and you know, Germany has produced some genre-defining heavy metal bands, so uh, I think it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, undoubtedly. And the three that we picked would be the headliners. Tonight, playing Oktoberfest, we will have the Scorpions, also known as Scorpions. There is no the in Scorpions, <laughs> even though it's hard to say it like yeah. that. And we have Accept, German heavy metal band extraordinaire, with everyone's favorite old uncle or grandfather as the lead singer, Udo Dirk Schneider, coming back once again, the least metal-looking metalhead ever as a lead singer. And then also a little more new era that really helped define modern power metal, Halloween. And uh, those were the three we picked. Maybe later we'll also get into some honorable mentions. But there's our headliners. And without further ado, shall we all travel to our own fantasy Oktoberfest? We shall. All right. Let's go. So here we are. We're going to pair our Martzen with Accept. Why not? That's a great pairing. Should we start with the music or start with the beer? At, <laughs> yeah, at a concert, you start with the beer, I think, right? Yeah, okay. I yeah. The beer before the band starts. <laughs> yeah, I, I usually, I'm usually too close to the stage. I want to, I want to finish my beer as much as I can before the crowd gets wild and someone spills it all over the floor or yeah. myself. Or okay. yeah, that makes sense. So let's get a beer. What are we going to have? An Einger? Yeah, Einger Oktoberfest Märzen. Right, so authentic Bavarian festival lager. I guess we might first say Märzen means March in German. That's my understanding. It means March because why is that, Mark? 
Why does it mean March? Because it's a Märzen, <laughs> and that Märzen is called that because it's actually brewed in March for this season. So it's cellared for quite a while. And I guess that goes back to the days when people didn't brew in the summer because they didn't have refrigeration, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Chris and I were talking before this. You know, we were wondering how many breweries actually do that now, having to turn over tank space so quickly that I can't imagine these beers are lagering for that period of time yeah it's probably pretty rare i don't have any actual knowledge or authority on on that and what's happening in germany but there's no way an american brewery is lagering a beer for six months or more i think you'd have to charge a lot more for a beer to be that old the average for most lager beer in in this country produced by american craft brewers is probably a month or less yeah, so maybe a little bit longer if a brewery's got some time on their hands. But it's, it's hard to sit and wait. You want to drink it, and uh, <laughs> and those tanks are valuable. You want to fill them with beer, empty them, and fill them again. Yeah, definitely. Well, if you had caves, yeah. you know, if, you, if we had big caves. <laughs> if we have like unlimited caves and in the, in the oak barrels to store them in. That's right. Yeah, yeah. drag in the lake ice <laughs> yeah. uh, at the end of winter, throw it down the hole. <laughs> that is one of the cool things when you go to Pilsner Vale that you see. They show you this room where they used to stack all the ice for the lagering back in the old yeah. days, so that still exists. I mean, they don't do that anymore, obviously. But, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, with modern refrigeration, you can brew this beer not only in March, but in other times of the year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, maybe one of our guests, you'd like to take a stab at like describing to everyone what a Meritzen is, and maybe also we could talk a little bit about this Einger beer. I think it probably should leave it up to a professional. Yes, yeah, so Meritzen is, you know, I guess my take would be a slightly, slightly more robust, uh, maybe a little bit more higher strength and rounded in the mouthfeel version of a Vienna lager. Pretty similar in that respect. It's like a dark amber to copper, light copper colored beer. Probably um, on average five and a half to six percent. Most German versions aren't going to be over six percent, but maybe a couple are, are hovering right around there. I feel like a lot of uh, American versions of this style are actually less strong than the German version for some reason. Or at least I know Wolfsridge is 5.4%, and I think CBC's is 5.3%. i am not entirely sure why, but a little bit lighter on alcohol makes it easier to drink. And there's a lot of variation within the style itself, where some of them have a little bit more of a caramel or toasty note to them, and others are a lot smoother. But it shouldn't be too caramel forward, and it shouldn't be too sweet, but it should have a medium body for a lager. You know, the Einger, I think, particularly is like really rounded tasting and smooth and soft on the tongue. And that's one of the things that makes it so easily drinkable to me. It's got a nice, rich body, too, I mean, mm-hmm. which I think is one of those things that's gone away as the Fest beer kind of evolved out of this. But did we talk about decoction mashing yet? We have not. Maybe. Uh, I mean, that's probably one of the most important things of getting that richness. And I don't know, do you practice that, Chris, at Wolf's Ridge? We do not. Um, we don't have a good way to actually do that. For those who are unfamiliar, decoction mashing, and, and I guess to start at the beginning, mashing is the initial process of producing beer where you take grains and add hot water. And that combination of barley, typically, but maybe wheat in this style should be 100% barley. In hot water, you're extracting sugars from the barley that will eventually be fermented into alcohol. A traditional mash is like one or two steps at a couple different temperatures. And that's just by adding hot water or warming up your vessel, depending on your equipment. And then you move it or lotter it into your kettle and boil it and then move it into a tank to ferment. To decoct, um, you then take a portion of that hot water grain mixture and boil that. 
the process of boiling that creates these really uh, rich Maillard reactions, which give you that deep, dark complexity and maybe some caramel notes, maybe some toasty notes. And then you add that boiled portion back to your main mash and that'll bring up the temperature. So instead of adding just hot water to bring up your temperature, you're adding this boiled mash or grain to bring up your temperature, but you're also getting all these rich flavors that develop from that boiling process. And you'll see those same things. You know, Maillard are also called browning reactions. Pat might be able to talk more to this, but it's not scientifically the same thing as caramelization, but similar. Yeah, it's a similar sort of process. And I'm not an expert in, in that area of chemistry, but you know, I think it, the idea is you have to have quite a lot of heat and you have to have some oxygen around mm-hmm. and then you can get you know these reactions that make the sugars into more complex mm-hmm. sorts of molecules that the yeast can't break down. Mm-hmm. I will say from a scientific point of view, my understanding is you know the whole reason why decoction mashing developed is because people didn't even have thermometers. So you didn't know what temperature the mash was at. But if you start at a certain temperature, you could, you know, like maybe I can hold my hand in here for 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. So that's 120 Fahrenheit or something. And then you say, well, now if I add one-third boiling water, then I know I'm going to get, you know, whatever, one-third of the way to boiling. And so I think that was really one of the origins of it. But, of course, it does affect the flavor and even the efficiency of the mashing, right? Yeah. I used to do decoction fairly frequently back when I home-brewed, and I always preferred those beers. Um, And I would would use this for um, even, like, Kolsch, you know, really light golden beer, light body, but it just adds richness and complexity that you can't get any other way. Coming back to how Woolsridge brews our Oktoberfest, we just can't efficiently move a large enough portion of our mash and all that grain into our boil kettle, which is the only place we could boil it and boil it. And then we'd have to pump it back and we, we don't have the piping for it. We don't have the right kind of pumps for it. It would be a mess. It's just not simple or easy process for us to do. So modern brewers who can't or don't want to decoct will get around that by using different types of grains. And so I would imagine that traditional German breweries that are decocting are probably not using much in the way of darker malts because they're getting color and flavor from that boiling um, action of the grain. But American breweries can use caramel malts or melanoidin or biscuit or or just like darker Munich malts to um, help get you the color and the flavors that you're seeking and and approximate that. Yep, but it's not a substitute though. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. And it is something... You know, on a homebrew scale, you can have multiple things going if you're only dealing with five to ten gallons of liquid at a time. That's a lot different to brewing on a scale where you're talking barrels. Yeah, I mean, I just did a decoction mash for a Hefeweizen recently. You were over right. when I did that, Mark. It's pretty easy. I just took the pan and scooped it right out of my <laughs> kettle and put it in, you know, and then and boiled it. But I can see where it would be quite difficult to do on the industrial scale. I think it's also fair to say not all German breweries still do decoction mashing. Some do and some don't. Yeah, I I don't know which ones do. I know some might not say and prefer that we think that they are, but I think most probably are moving away or have moved away from that just because it's labor intensive. And it's one of those things that I've heard talk about kind of like first wart hopping, kind of like, you know, certain hops are only for bittering or only for aroma. These old tropes that I think older Brewers, especially people sending knowledge down from much larger production skill mega breweries. I've heard people say that decoction mashing doesn't actually do much to the beer or improve the beer or change the flavor or not enough to really affect it. But my experience is that it most definitely does. Now, Mark, can you tell our listeners anything about Accept? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, now, I, I was joking around about 
Udo's appearance. And, you know, shame on all of us for branding anything by reading the book by looking at its cover. Because <laughs> what you look like does not necessarily dictate who you are. And that's just an odd thing that we all do anyway as a society. And we probably shouldn't because Udo's freaking awesome. And, <laughs> and he can belt out some beautiful notes to those of us that understand it and probably some excruciating notes to those that do not understand. But I think the biggest constant has probably been guitarist Wolf Hoffman and sporting a flying V, of course, which you only should. And Udo, he's no longer with the band and actually a gentleman by the name of Mark Torino, who is a Jersey boy that was in a band called T.T. Quick back in the 80s. His voice is pretty similar, and they do a damn great job as well, continuing that tradition and that sound. And some of their newer albums are actually great, but we know them for the old stuff. And I think at our, well, we can let Mark still sing a few songs, but I think that the Udo Dirk Schneider songs should be sung only by Udo at our festival. With a name like that, can you doubt the origin of? This of, band of being German. <laughs> that's pure authenticity, right? You, you can't fake German, that. That's a pretty German name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for those who've never heard any except music or seen Udo, so he's short. I think is that fair to say? Short. Yeah. And these days, uh, he doesn't have any hair left, but he never had very much, did he? Yeah, it was always cut short. But his voice is kind of a little bit gravelly. Would it be fair to say a little bit in the vein of uh, Brian Johnson, ACDC, in some ways? Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, hey, let's all raise a glass and uh, toast one to Udo and glad he's still alive and able to entertain us. Thanks, Udo. So, Pat, what band's coming up next? Well, I think we got to go to Scorpions. All right. My very favorite band. I think before Klaus and Rudy and the boys take the stage, we should have another beer. Absolutely. And I'm going to say we're going to go with the modern Oktoberfest beer, which is often in this country called Fest beer. Mm-hmm. Although in Germany, sometimes called Weizen. Is that right? I think it's Wiesen. Wiesen. Okay. That's one thing you can learn from this podcast, having good guests on who can set you straight on your pronunciation. <laughs> That's right. We've got a fluent German speaker as my head brewer at the brew pub, Francis, and so he helps correct us when we say our German German words wrong, um, especially yeah, German awesome. beer names. And uh, I'll, I'll even mispronounce slightly later on when we drink Buchenrauch, our smoked lager. I, I know I'm not saying that 100% correctly. <laughs> so. That makes sense, too, because if I said Weizen... That would be more like a, a yeah, you think of a Weezer, right? yeah. yeah, a whole uh, different so connotation. Weezen, yeah, and one can imagine after a couple of liters, you might just get, <laughs> you know think you're getting a fest beer, and you end up with a you know a Hefeweizen, <laughs> which wouldn't be the end of the world, yeah, yeah. but right. I assume when you're in each tent, really, they just are serving one beer. Like everybody's Probably. drinking that one beer. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder. Know. I wonder how many options they have. As Americans, like we're so used to selection. Yeah. That's one of the first things I remember thinking about last time I was romanticizing visiting Oktoberfest sometime. Like, what, my, what would my choices be? Would there be a Dunkel available if you wanted one? But yeah, maybe it's just only Fest beer and that's, that's it. That's a great question. It is something that you mentioned 
the Americans, and boy, are we ever in a brewing period of just overload of selection. Mm -hmm. And there is something to be said for doing something right for a few hundred years, too. So sure, I don't think you can mess with the Martzen, and definitely German brewing tradition, mm -hmm. any style they make is going to be pretty spot on. Well, if I'm in the middle of Oktoberfest at a table that I had to reserve a, a year in advance, I don't think I'm asking for the tap list or... Or a flight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. I, I, I mean, they probably I, I yeah, definitely not a flight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, it's funny. I was visiting a couple of weeks ago an old neighbor of mine that lives. Well, he just lives on the other side of Pat. He's not that far away. But we were uh, sitting outside smoking cigars. He has like this cigar Wednesday thing now that he's retired. And I brought over Lawn Raker, Land Grants, mm -hmm. Fest beer, and then also he had. CBCs. So we were having these, and that brought forth the conversation. And he did go to Oktoberfest last year. And one of the lessons that he was sharing with me that he learned that day was how the staff that brings you the leaders, and you always see the women holding like four in each hand yeah. or, or whatever yeah, what the max is, yeah. where you're like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of beer to be carrying in glass and a lot of volume and weight. I don't know that I could carry eight of these sure. at, at one time. So it was kind of impressive to see that. But he said he learned a little bit that day on how they were paid because they are paid by the leader that they bring out. And they had to get an early morning table at this tent. So it was like a eight to noon or mm -hmm. nine to noon or something to where he's, he's kind of thinking this is going to be a day of it, right? So he and one of the other gentlemen he was with, they ordered another leader for the table, and he thought, so that the beer doesn't get too warm, they would split it. <laughs> and he said that did not go down well at all. <laughs> nine. And, and she just started yelling, nine, bad beer, bad beer, nine, you cannot. You know? uh, kind of lost her shit a little bit, and that's when it was explained to him, Actually, yeah, they get paid by the leader they bring out. You yep. just basically split her earning on the table in half. Kind of funny, but having not been there before, I would like to find this out, but I'm not sharing leaders, I'll tell you that. No. Etiquette lesson number two. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Wear a white T-shirt and do not share your beer with other people. <laughs> the Scorpions are about to hit the stage. Do all you guys have a beer now? Did everybody find a beer to drink? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And what do we choose? I got the uh, Weinstefaner. Fest beer, which is probably one of the best ones. Oh, it's a good one. I'm the, drinking the Hofbrau Oktoberfest beer. Mm -hmm. I've got the Bitburger Fest beer, which my understanding is a new offering. That's right. And this actually wouldn't be permitted at the actual Oktoberfest, but since we're in a fantasy version, <laughs> we get the hell we want here. <laughs> the Scorpions are playing. It's anything goes. Anything goes. <laughs> and what, not, do you, what do you think of it? You had not had it before, right? I'd never had it. It's maybe a touch darker than uh, some of the Fest beers I've had. Really good. It's light. Got some toastiness to it, though. It goes down super easy. Yeah, it's kind of a hybrid of the Martin Fest beer. And Chris, you're having Weinstefaner, too, right? Yes. Um, and that's uh, the one I always look most forward to every year, I, I claim, is my favorite. I don't know if it's the American in me or if it's just the balance, but it, it seems happier than a little more hop forward than most of the other versions are, which is really nice. Yeah, I could see that. A lot of German beers have this. You get a slight metallic note aromatically out of the gate that I pick up on this. There's a, a tiny hint of sulfur, too, which um, some people don't like, but I actually 
I kind of like just that hint of sulfur and some European lagers. Yeah, in low volume, mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly appropriate. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, I think, you know, maybe for people who don't know, and it's confusing, right? What's the difference between an Oktoberfest mm-hmm. yeah. Martzen and a Fest beer? So to me, the main difference is, of course, this is more golden, not that kind of burnished copper color that we had on the Iinger. There's less of that toasty, slight caramel sweetness, so it's not... It's still got a malt sweetness, but it's not quite as mm-hmm. sweet, I think. This style was actually originally developed by Polliner, as I understand it, in the 1970s. What I read, this is what it says in the BJCP guidelines, the Polliner brewer wanted it to be more poundable, yeah. which, you know, <laughs> when you're serving it in one liter of glasses, yeah. that only makes sense, doesn't it? And, yeah. you know, I think mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. You know, after a hundred so years, uh, you know, Innovation takes over. Right? Change, change it, you know, <laughs> once a century. It's okay to change things a little bit. No problem with that. That's it, why I was surprised when I poured the Bitburger. It is a, a little darker, and I think you're right, Mark, saying it's more of a hybrid. But yeah, overall, I, I think it's good. It should also be said, though, that the Fest beer, it's still at the same ABV. So this Hofbrau one I'm drinking is actually 6.3%. Okay. So. So even though it's more poundable, uh, it'll still get you. It's just a matter of perception. Trouble. It'll still yeah. pound you. Yeah, yeah. I was to say, it, pounding is all in the right context, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it reminds me a little bit. It's like a little bit of a dial back version of a Maybach in some ways, mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. maybe somewhere between a Maybach and a Hellas or something. I, I don't know. Or, yeah, that's. I think that's. I, I was trying to think of like earlier during the break how best to describe it and i was thinking like a maltier stronger sweeter version of a hellas lager is probably yeah. a really good way to describe it you know and i think the uh, emergence of the Wiesen and especially its popularity and how it's kind of overtaken oktoberfest now coincides with the consolidation of beer that we saw in america and i think also happened around the world where you know light lager became the predominant choice for most beer drinkers and so while this isn't light in strength even though the color and being less malty i think it just makes it more approachable to more people and ironically though this is i think not necessarily an improvement over the Meritzen, but i do prefer drinking this to Meritzen if at least if i'm going to have a lot of them so you know this is a success story out of what kind of ruined a lot of beer tradition in america almost but yeah, yeah, but it surely isn't as light as the mass-produced no, no, lagers no. that we have here in the U.S. Well, I think, you know, maybe if we could find a more traditional style in one tent, and we have that option at this fantasy version, mm-hmm. that, you know, we'll start off with some Maritans, and then when we say, hey, boys, this is going to be a day of it, we'll just lighten it up a little bit, get on a fest beer. So they're with the program. I think it's okay. <laughs> The Scorpions. I could talk for a long time on the so Scorpions. So Pat is uh, wearing a Scorpions t-shirt, and Pat and I have seen a lot of Scorpions actually in the last few years. I think we definitely have to bring back Michael Schenker and Uli. I think we should have all guitarists, am I right, in our <laughs> fantasy version? Oh yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, the Scorpions have been my favorite band since 1982, and in my homebrewing forays, I name most of my beers after Scorpion songs. That's the general rule, although 
every once in a while. It's a worthy tribute. Yeah. I guess for people who maybe only know the Scorpions from Rocky Like a Hurricane, which is might be many of our listeners, perhaps, <laughs> they actually started in 1972. The original lineup included Klaus Meine, the singer, and brothers Rudolph and Michael Schenker. Michael was only 16 at the time, but shortly thereafter, then they went on tour with UFO, and the story is that, they, I don't know what country they're in, but UFO decided that like they would be better off with Michael Schenker in their band, so they flushed his passport down the toilet, and then he, he couldn't uh, go back to Germany, I guess, and so then he joined UFO. I actually find that to be a blessing. Yeah, oh, my goodness, yeah, 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 Cause, because then after he left, and, and so for people who don't know, Michael Schenker is almost certainly one of the most influential rock guitar players of all time. But his replacement was a guy named Uli John Roth, who was a very Hendrix-inspired guitar player and and really a very creative kind of hippie. But he could rock the Stratocaster, kind of like Hendrix, actually. And that persisted until about 77. And then he left. And then Michael came back briefly. But then that I know he was having a lot of issues at that time, and that didn't work out. And then they brought in Matthias Jabs, and then that kind of moved into the era where Love Drive, Animal Magnetism, Blackout, Love at First Sting, and so you have you know the Scorpions Huge that most albums. people know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A little more pop oriented by that time. Everything was probably yeah, at that, at, yeah, at but period. in a good way for a while, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, and uh, well, I don't know for this band from Germany to become as popular as they did, you know, singing English. Is, is a testament. And the lyrics definitely got better over time. Uh, I can remember a, a, a line off the first album, the Lonesome Crow album. This is a very German kind of thing to say if you don't know very much English. It was, she's my woman, she's my dear. Makes my food, brings me beer. <laughs> well, that's poetic. Well, that is poetic. <laughs> it seems like a nice girlfriend now. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure lots of ninth graders have written uh, <laughs> quite so poetic. But Mark and I, a few years back, went up to Detroit to see Michael Schenker in concert. And this version of the Michael Schenker band contained Herman Rarebell and Francis Bushel. So this is the drummer and the bass player from the Scorpions. So we had but, three Scorpions. Yeah. So it was practically like seeing the Scorpions. Yeah. In fact, that's a three-fifths German band, right? So, <laughs> but it was in this place, I think it was called Harpo's. It was in not the best part of Detroit, which is saying something. I could relate a couple stories. I mean, at one point I realized, well, you had to pay cash for everything. And so I'm like, well, I ran out of cash. And I went outside to ask like, if there was an ATM machine. They're like, well, <laughs> there's one across the street, but That's right. uh, I wouldn't recommend walking over there and using it. Yeah. <laughs> now, let me quote this guy, too, because this is at the merch stand, because we were going to get Herman Rarebell's book, uh, Autobiography, and have it signed as well. So this young German guy that was working the merch booth, he says, yes, there is a bankomat across the street. I tried to go earlier today. When you go... You do not have money, and when you return, you also do not have money. <laughs> so I think uh, he was insinuating you would be mugged if you walked across there. It. it was a pretty rough area, too, oh, yeah. as hot as is. Well, yeah, I mean, there was another thing where I think there were a number of opening bands, but I think the opening bands were like they put out like a flyer and said, who would like to open for the Michael Schenker band for <laughs> free? Like so, yeah. So, like, the opening band you know that was two before Schenker like when then we're watching the opening band before Schenker like the lead singer happens to be like standing kind of right in front of us I'm like oh that was the guy who was just singing and then the next thing I know like someone punched him and he like <laughs> he fell down on the ground in front of us I'm like oh geez okay 
Uh, so we just moved. And then at the end of the night, after we had talked to uh, Herman Rarebell and he, he signed his book, we're going to leave and there's an older gentleman, you know, probably in his mid-60s, he, he came up to us and he was trying to get out of there, right? Do you remember how yes. that went, Mark? It's a little blurry how it all went down, but basically he was looking for a ride to get back to the ferry or tunnel, whichever they have, to he, get back from Detroit to he, Canada. He lived in Canada and he had hitchhiked there. There were no taxis that would come to that part of Detroit to pick him up. And we had Rightfully an Uber. Rightfully so. Yeah. yeah. So we had an Uber to get out of there. And he's like, oh, could, could you just give me a ride? And, and, you know, I don't know. It's just like a strange man walks up to you and say, can I get in your Uber with you? Well, we let him. And we let him. It seemed right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's the right thing to do, but we were skeptical. Because there was something like the last bus leaves at midnight, and if you don't get that, then you're out of luck. And then we had to convince our Uber driver to go a little bit out of the way to drop him near the bus terminal and everything. But, you know, Godspeed. Godspeed. I hope you made it back. But once we were in the Uber and talking, he definitely was a diehard Shanker oh. and Scorpions fan. So it... It was worth it. It all made yeah. sense. Yeah, it yeah. all made sense. I mean, you know, yeah, he hitchhiked all day to get there to see the show, and he had no way of necessarily of getting back home. So that's, you know, I, when I'm in my 60s, I'm that diehard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this I do know. Of the six listed breweries, we definitely could not have Wolf's Ridge beers at the actual Oktoberfest, but aren't we lucky we made our own? So coming up next, we've got Halloween paired with Wolf's Ridge beers. And some pretzels. Homemade pretzels, by the way. Oh, yeah. I think I'm ready for one. Before we check out Halloween, we better get some beers in. Thank God Chris brought us some. Let's crack them. Having these in cans, if you couldn't tell. Well, this is a gorgeous beer. That copper color and topped with three plus fingers of really thick foam. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about this beer, Chris. Yeah, this has been one of our really probably you know best received beers every year. But you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to judge how authentic the enthusiasm is for a beer when it's this heavily tied to a season and a celebration. But I feel like every year we make it, it gets a little bit better. Uh, I wish we could make more of it more often so I could make it even that much better. It's hard when you brew a beer, you know, a couple times a year, you know, back to back to uh, really adjust the recipe and learn from it. So this is one that I look forward to tweaking again next year. But, you know, trying to do our best to approximate, you know, the traditional Mertzen. And I think the majority of the grain bill is... Weyermann Barca Vienna Malt. So Barca, it's like a an heirloom variety, and um, it's just a little bit sweeter and fuller-bodied in flavor than their traditional Vienna or their traditional Pilsner malt from Weyermann. And um, I find, at least like the Vienna and the Pilsner, give you better extract as well. So we've brewed a couple beers that were like really high Barca Vienna grain bills and your first work gravity is like two points higher than it would be otherwise with any other okay. malt. And so I don't know if that's always the case, but that's been our finding. And so that's just a nice byproduct of it because it is a little bit more expensive. 
but then you know some Munich Mall, and then uh, a hint of caramel. Um, there's really not a lot of place for caramel malt in this style. You don't want it to taste like caramel candy. You don't want it to taste overly sweet, but more for color than flavor, but a little bit of that flavor and uh, a little bit of Munich malt. Again, because we're not decocting, we're trying to approximate some of these flavors and colors with grains instead. Well, it's got such a nice, rich amber hue to it. And the mouthfeel is, I would say, a nice medium full. It's almost like a pillowy, creamy mouthfeel that Mm -hmm. is very texturally pleasant. Yeah, and that's something else that we've been working on slowly. I wish I was a little bit better on the science side. I always like say I'm better at the artistic side of designing recipes and flavor combinations than I am at the science side of of uh, understanding some of the functionalities happening in, in the brew house and, and mathematically deciding how much more salts or whatnot to add to your beer. But, you know, tweaking the water profile is really how we're getting that. And I think that's something else we're getting a little bit better every year at figuring out how to make these lagers taste smoother and less less grainy or less harsh. Is that a little higher in uh, calcium chloride? Uh, mm-hmm. If someone were homebrewing this style, I mean, what advice would you give them as to what kind of water profile to shoot for? Um, so like I said, I, I don't have the best understanding and, and I know there's homebrewers who understand all this way better than me. You know, we're just using city water. It goes through a charcoal filter, but we're not doing any kind of RO or any major additions. Um, we're not adding anything to our hot liquor before it goes into our mash ton. Um, so when we mash in our IPAs, we're adding gypsum and that's it. Um, and then for beers that we want to be a little bit smoother or more rounded in mouthfeel, then um, we're also adding calcium chloride. And I think we're doing three to one or more for like hazy IPAs. And that's one of the tricks we've found that really gives you that stable haze. It's not yeast. It's not hops. That was one of the fun challenges of learning how to brew that style for someone who doesn't drink a lot of that beer is just figuring out exactly how to get that. And not a lot of people told us how to do it so we figured it out ourselves but if you're not going that high on the calcium chloride maybe a two to one is where i think we're getting that mouthfeel but not creating haze we're not doing it to the point where you can taste it in the beer the other thing that i really love about this beer and this style when it's done well is you get this richness in the flavor but yet a clean finish there's not like a lingering sweetness and Mm -hmm. uh, i mean i always think that's a beautiful thing and and actually not that easy to do i don't think for homebrewers, how do you hit that mark? I'd say one of the things would just be to control with, uh, you know, maybe a higher mash temperature to build some of that residual mouthfeel or body into the beer. But otherwise, uh, drying it out as much as possible. You know, we're not using enzymes or anything like that. But like we've found the drier a beer gets, usually the more we like it. This style, I think I'd want it to be like about three or less Play-Doh finishing, but then, yeah, that higher mash temperature. And we're, we're normally mashing most of our core beers at like 148 to 150, and this is one that I might do 152 or 154 to try to like promote some of that. The last time I brewed it, I upped the uh, mash temperature mm-hmm. and trying to get that drop and to dry out. It's a challenge for a home brewer. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, it definitely depends on your equipment. But between the two batches I've done, I was able to get it to drop some and, and, and make some improvements. Mm-hmm. Having really healthy yeast, and I think especially with lager yeast, having yeast that isn't Gen 1 is going to be huge. We've found that lager yeast at Gen 2 to 4 is where it's really starting to hit its stride, and it's going to be fermenting 
more vigorously in, in trying out a beer better. So it's hard, especially as a home brewer, to get lager yeast you know, into that generation. But for us as well, as a commercial brewery, we need so much yeast. And we're uniquely lucky now that we have a production brewery and then a brew pub where we can brew lagers at both so we don't have to commit to a 90-barrel batch of lager uh, every single time we want a new gen. But if we brew some Pilsner or something... And maybe another beer if we were for lucky, I think for the Oktoberfest, we brewed Pilsner, Dunkel, and then Oktoberfest. And so it was like Gen 3, and so it just is more likely to dry the beer out than on that Gen 1. Um, and especially at our scale, it's just really expensive to start in the first place with enough yeast for a big batch of lager. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I guess for the home brewers out there, even if you don't do that, make a starter. That's, yeah, uh, like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> of course, yeah. that's kind of the mm-hmm. beer brewing 101, 101 for lagers, yeah. really. Yeah. But um, Yeah, but if you're starting with Gen 1, even if you create that starter years ago, they had said, you know, for any variety, even the lager yeast, start your knockout or, or day one, pitch that yeast at 70 degrees or maybe even more. And then step it down. And so if we have Gen 1 lager yeast, we'll knock out at 70. And then the next day, we're dropping it 1 to 2 degrees an hour until we get to our fermentation temperature in the low 50s or high 40s. You know, you don't ferment that much sugar away. So it's mostly fermenting at the normal lagering temperature anyway. But it just the yeast has more room to grow and replicate at a healthier temperature. So that's done wonders for us over the years by doing that. So I definitely recommend trying that if you're able to step your temperature down. Oh, that's a good tip. I mean, because... I've thought about this a lot as a home brewer, and, and you see all kinds of different advice if you look anywhere. So basically during that lag phase, you're cooling down, So, but by the time the beer really starts producing all the flavors and things, it's at the right temperature, but it gives it time to grow mm-hmm. and acclimate itself to the wort, right? That, yeah, definitely. In some ways, of course, we think about lagers as not being very yeast-forward, but you don't want to be tasting much of the yeast. Mm-hmm. But how much does it matter what lager yeast you choose when you're making an Oktoberfest, or for that matter, I guess any lager. The one we use most often is the White Labs German lager. I think it's 830. That's the Vine Stefaner strain. But it doesn't flock well, but it flocks better than most of them. And it's consistently clean and neutral, and it dries the beers out. And so we use most of that, and that's what's in this beer. Um, but occasionally we'll bring in, uh, we just brought in a pitch of Bach lager yeast, and it will create a slightly fuller body or, or more malt-forward presence in a beer. So read those descriptions, and they usually are pretty spot on. But some of the more neutral description uh, yeasts, could be fairly interchangeable. So then just look at the numbers, you know, what's going to attenuate to where you want it. But for a commercial brewery like us, we definitely want to be able to reuse that yeast. So if it's really hard to harvest and reuse, then that's something we want to factor in. Are hops just an afterthought in this recipe? How does one think about hops when you think about these styles? For traditional styles, I always want to use traditional malt and hops. And so, you know, we're using 100% or close to that German malt and German hops and German yeast. So this beer is, I'm not sure if it's 100% Tetnang. Um, There might be some Hallertau as well, but we try to keep it as close as possible to German-grown hops. And um, usually um, in our German lagers, we have a little bit of first wort hopping in there, which I think adds some flavor, but also it helps our boil out a little bit. Um, And there's usually some towards the end of the boil, maybe not in a whirlpool necessarily, but maybe like a 15-minute addition or something to add some flavor that you can't replicate with an American hop. 
what kind of IBU? Maybe twenty twenty five IBUs, something like that. Yeah, this one this one's probably about twenty. It's on the can, although you know it may change different uh, bag of hops to bag of hops depending on you know how you're ordering your hops. Of course, even some of the guidelines that you see from BJCP or GABF, I think sometimes the IBU numbers feel on the high side to me. And so sometimes, like I build a recipe and look at a sliding scale of where this style should be. The high end is you know thirty IBUs and the low end's twenty, and I feel like at twenty or twenty five, like it's almost too too bitter to me. So that's one of those things that you know, in a malt forward beer, I'm trying to make sure I don't overwhelm it with hops. You kind of just want it to put a period on the beer just mm-hmm. so to keep it clean to keep the finish clean but almost subliminal that you don't even think yeah. about it right yeah it's, it's part of the balance and it is part of the flavor um but it is an afterthought in the flavor compared to at least like we were talking about earlier the vine Stefaner festive beer like i feel like that's an integral part of the aroma of that beer is there's a happy aroma to it um, that's fairly unique to that one compared to most of the other ones Now, Mark, speaking about fall beers, and, and we've got, you know, wet hop beers, we've got the yeah, Oktoberfest beers, and we've got the pumpkin beers. But on the topic of pumpkins, yes, we could talk a little bit about Halloween at this point. Oh, yeah. Well, fortunately, we've got an expert amongst us, <laughs> Jamie Gentry. Well, I, I don't know um, how many experts exist uh, on the band Halloween, and I, I'm not sure I'd qualify as one but i bet surprisingly more than you think i'd probably say upwards to about 80 to 100 (laughs) worldwide it's a strong number (laughs) jamie is the the closest we could get though on uh, you know columbus area beer loving halloween experts halloween is a band that i like from my youth they formed back in the mid 80s 1984 to be exact there is significant band in the history of the metal genre and if you'll permit me a minute to explain why Heavy metal music as a genre has multiple subgenres, and each of those subgenres have borne multiple, multiple subgenres of that subgenre. And uh, <laughs> just to interrupt for a minute, Mark sent me a text the other day. It was a list of like the best metal band in all 40 genres. <laughs> in all 40 genres, <laughs> yeah. You know. So that yeah, is subgenres going, yeah. of subgenres, right? It, it is. And, and <laughs> I think that's why heavy metal music on a worldwide scale is one of the most popular types of music because there's something that appeals to everyone in every culture. But Halloween really created their own subgenre, uh, which now is currently called power metal which is a subgenre of the thrash metal scene. So this band started in Hamburg, Germany, 1984. That was when bands like Metallica, Megadeth, and Slayer, and those bands were starting up. Bands that were touring maybe Europe for the first time, playing fast versions of Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and bands that came before them. Well, Halloween then took that in an even faster direction, which is where the power metal genre comes from that's really high tempo fast riffs fast beats but with a very operatic type vocal so you take like a rob halford bruce dickinson and really up the scream you know i didn't listen a lot to halloween uh, back in the 20th century when probably they were at the peak of their <laughs> man i did i mean i was glued right into that with uh, headbangers ball yeah. first time i saw like I want out or Keeper of the Seven Keys. Yeah. 
which is Keeper of the Seven Keys, just a masterpiece opus. I mean, it's a pretty long song for uh, MTV Airplay. And there's a lot to it. And I think one thing, Jamie, that we were listening to some Halloween the other night, Pat not being as aware of them, kind of comparing Michael Kiske's voice to uh, Jeff Tate's a little bit. In yep. that, because it is in that yep. operatic, Bruce Dickinson vein. He was um, a teenager when he started with the band, too, which is yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, the, their lead guitar the first player album. had played on the first album. Yep. And then he realized that it was just a lot for him to handle lead guitar and vocals. and That first and, album sounds great. It's just not the range that... that not the range. You're yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The range is almost, it's shocking at how high the notes get, but it just really goes with the music. And as I share this music with my kids, I try to teach them that heavy metal is great to sing with your fist, you know, to really pump your fist to. And I Want Out is that, that song that really hooked me off of Keeper of the Seven Keys. Yeah, it's very too. anthemic. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's easy to catch on. And that was that was really the song that hooked me on to them early on. And that, that classic lineup, I think they did maybe uh, five or six albums together and before the wheels started to come off. And uh, just like a lot of heavy metal bands where they try to expand their, their sound palette and eventually come back to the genre that they started in and really perfect that. And that's really been the evolution of Halloween. Currently, they're still touring, they're still playing, and some of their tours involve old lineups and new lineups into like a giant band, and, and they'll play together at the end. And it's been kind of an interesting evolution for the band, but... Really, those first three albums uh, were critical for the beginning of the power metal genre and albums I still listen to today. Yeah, no doubt. So good. Yeah, yeah. So I appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to find somebody to talk to about Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> we're, you know, we're like public access TV, more or less. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way to sum it up in a very Wayne's World-esque sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, Chris, now, ordinarily, we would go from lighter to darker, but since history allowed us to go from darker to lighter, now we're going to crack your September fest. Yes, we are. Innovation in Columbus, Ohio. We have a September fest beer now. First there was Polliner, and then there was Chris. That's what I heard. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... This is a beer that, due to COVID and amongst other things, was kind of uh, rushed through production. The beer itself was in the tank for almost two months before it hit the can, but we had various delays and whatnot. You know, the name Septemberfest is kind of almost just a tongue-in-cheek joke about Oktoberfest, and then also Oktoberfest being traditionally held in September, not October. So this is a Septemberfest Vizen being released in September, but most of it will probably be consumed in October at this point. But yeah, it's just uh, our first take on on emulating this style. That's now you know the most popular style at Oktoberfest. Obviously, much lighter in color, but trying to do our best to accentuate that rich maltiness. It's very Hellas-like. Really nice, rich malt character. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of that kind of golden but rich malty yeah. kind of flavor that you get from these kinds of German lagers. And so this is the first Septemberfest beer that I think yeah. I've had, but uh, not my last. <laughs> it's funny. I get the Hellas comparison for some reason it hits my tongue i expect more of like a hot bitterness looking at it and i don't get it's much smoother it's good Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
so we're going a little bit off the beaten track of what a traditional Oktoberfest is here. I would call this a bonus chapter. This is a bonus. It might be a bonus, but this is this is a fall beer. Maybe we should tell everyone what beer we're drinking now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're drinking Buchenrock. Yeah. Buchenrock. Yeah. Is that uh, the way we want to say this? <laughs> I had a German, a native German guest in our tap room years and years ago. One of the you know first few batches of this beer we ever did, and she sought me out. This was back when I worked on Godly Hours, and so it, you could still find me crawling around the brewery at eight p.m. in the brew pub. And the staff got me and said, "There's a customer that wants to talk to you." And heavy German accent. This woman is telling me how good the beer is. They tell me about the name, and the name Buchenrauch um, means beach smoke um, because they use beech wood to smoke the malt. That's yeah. very traditional. That's the way that they make this beer in Germany and Bam. But when I said Buchenrauk, she is like, no, you're not saying it right. And and so she 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 coached me into like a more guttural pronounced version of Buchenrauk. My brewer Francis, who is not a native but is fluent in German, he has coached us to like truly say Buchenrauk. Um, and that first like Buch. And I'm probably still not doing the sound justice um, is really how you enunciate this word properly. And a part of the question that the German woman had asked originally, she was concerned that we were calling it book burning because uh, <laughs> Buchenrauk can also mean uh, Buchen is book and Rauch is uh, smoke. And so she was worried we were you know, referencing book burning of some sort. And I've had numerous customers over the years tell me, why would you call a beer book burning? Or I'd be like, no, it means beach <laughs> book. And they're like, no, you're wrong. It means book burning. Google it. Well, if you Google it, you get both definitions. And the way the name originally came about, the bag of malt from Weirman says Buchenrauch on it. And so that's the only reason that we even went with that name. It just felt hyper-German. It exactly described the beer. And we've kind of kept it ever since. But it is one of the more harder names of ours to pronounce uh, and whatnot. Was there that much outrage over the potential of calling a beer book-burning? Well, so I can think of a lot worse beer names out there. For, for sure. <laughs> a lot more offensive names. A, a German beer referencing book burning could um, have some pretty horrible connotations, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I see that. So, yeah, but, you know. I don't know. Whatever. I don't, I don't want to upset anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm, I'm very confident that the name actually means beach smoke. Um, and I haven't heard that complaint in a few years, but it used to happen a couple times a year. Interesting. But yeah, so Mark and Pat, you, you were kind of talking about how this is like an aside to an Oktoberfest. And I guess the reference to be made here, at least in regards to our style, this is a smoked lager, but more specifically, it's a Rausch beer or Rauch beer, which is a smoked beer. But um, most of the super traditional ones you're going to get from Germany are also Mertzens. And so that's the sub style. So it's a smoked beer, but what style has been smoked? And the most famous one you can actually find in the States, at least in a bottle, is Escht Schlenkerla. And the name loosely means something about like a stumbling drunk. Um, <laughs> I didn't German. know that. Yeah, so if you look it up and it's kind of like a loose like, translation that you can't truly translate to English, but that's kind of what the name references. But even at John Eagle, you can probably find three to four versions of smoked beer from Esch Schlenkerla from Bamberg and um, every beer that they make is smoked and it's the smokiest beer you're ever going to find in this country from Germany anyway. But it is delightful. It is all very good. It is, it is a, some it of is the best a, beer in the world. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Shingle is great. Yeah, but they make a smoked Weiss beer and a mm-hmm. smoked Doppelbach and a smoked Helles, which is, to their claim, only it, the malt is not actually smoked, whereas all these other styles is smoked malt. And they reuse the yeast from the other smoked beers, and the yeast absorbs so much smoke flavor that that's how they get the smokiness in the Helles. No shit. I'm not entirely sure if that's 100% true, but that's the story that I originally read or heard about that beer. But their beer is very smoky, and they age their own beer. Beechwood, and then they use that to smoke their own malt, and so they control all of those factors. It's all very freshly smoked, and it's therefore smokier and different than what you're going to find commercially in the States from breweries that are buying commercially smoked malt, at least that's imported from Germany. And so we're using German smoked malt from Fireman, which I think is pretty close to where the Schlenkerla malt is smoked. But it's drastically different because it's a different company doing it. They are using beach smoke, but this is not a fast-selling malt product. Most breweries in this country, um, let alone around the world, are even using it. And so you don't really know if you're getting year-old malt or two-month-old malt. The older it gets, the less intense the smoke is. And smoke inherently is going to be fairly hard to control. So even though we're brewing a very traditional recipe, Buchenrauch is 93% beechwood smoked malt and then some oak smoked wheat because the oak is actually smoked more intensely smoky than the beechwood. The beechwood is not smoky enough to get the character we want in this beer. And no matter what we do to this beer with beechwood smoke, it's not as smoky as what you're going to find in a bottle from Schlenkerla. That's the beer I really want to emulate with this. Schlenkerla's smoked Märzen, which is what Buchenrauch is, but the Schlenkerla version is darker and much, much smokier than anything I could produce here, um, at least with beechwood smoke. I could use a bunch of oak or some other malts that are very non-traditional in a German beer. Cherry wood is a common one that a lot of brewers in America use, but I find the smoke to become oily and off-putting, so I try not to use it. So um, we're just using the Weirman oak and beechwood smoked malts in this beer. It's wonderful. I have bragged about this beer for a long time. It's my all-time favorite beer that we produce at Wolf's Ridge. Now, the color of this beer is burnished copper, I might call it. Certainly, it's the darkest beer we've had today. Would you guys all agree with that? Definitely, yeah. And so, if I were to brew a beer with all smoked malt, actually, I was kind of thinking this beer, it would surprise me a little bit that almost the whole beer, the base malt, is the smoked malt. Maybe it shouldn't be, but that's just my ignorance. But... Does the color come from the smoke malt, or is there a specialty malt you have to add to get that? Yeah, we've got some specialty malt in there, um, and that, again, is mostly there for color more than flavor. We're using, I want to say, Carabohemian from Fireman, but it's a pretty dark crystal malt. It's like 90 93% beechwood smoked malt, and then a fraction of of whatever is left of uh, oak smoked malt, and then, you know couple percentage points of this Carabahemian to give you the color. And again, every time we, we go back to compare this to the Schlenkerla Mertzen, um, this ours is always not as dark as theirs. Ours is always not as smoky as theirs. And so it's like trying to get as close as possible. But even but that beer is technically a little bit outside the style guidelines that a judge might look at. And so it's, again, one of those things we're always trying to like – how important is it to brew exactly to style and how important is it to brew something that people like or that, you know, whatever you want to create. And so it's this balancing act that we're working on as a brewer. I mean, it, it may be worth saying that if we were to turn the way back machine far enough back in time that all the beers would be smoky, wouldn't they? Yeah, that's true. 
my beer history is failing me a few beers in now on when the invention of convection heating or whatever takes place in the malting process. But yeah, historically, all beer would have been smoky because the malt had to have been dried over mm-hmm. a flame. Yeah. I think yep. actually the advances in malting happened in England. But one of the things was they realized they could use coke. And by that, I mean it's like a form of coal, not mm-hmm. uh, other things you might associate with coke. Back to Metal Fest. <laughs> people, people, people at, at a really Metal Fest, it might not then. be a pure carbon, but they realized you could use that instead of you know wood, basically, mm-hmm. to dry out the malts. And we haven't really talked about the development of Munich and Vienna malts, which is almost a whole other podcast, right? We talked earlier about Spaten, which developed the first Merzen, but the head brewer at Spaten was this guy, Gabriel Sattelmeyer, and he... And uh, there's another brewer named Anton Dreyer who had a brewery in Vienna. And they went to England and they toured around and everything. And they're like, oh, wow, look at how the British are making malts. And they went back. And then from what they learned on that trip, then that's basically the origin of both Vienna malts and Munich malts. Mm. And that actually is instrumental in some ways in the development of Märzen. Woolsridge does a second smoked beer, a little bit less regularly, but also um, fairly frequently for this style, and that's our smoked Teleslager. We call our smoked Teleslager Fire und Wasser, um, which means fire and water, and it looks like a Teleslager. It's you know, golden. There's no color to it other than that traditional golden color, but it's almost as smoky smelling as, as Buchenrauch is. Um, and so that's another one that's uh, extra fun. Um, to give someone for the first time because um, kind of like our best-selling beer, Clear Sky Daybreak, you look at it and you assume one thing, and then when you smell it or taste it, it's drastically different than what you're expecting um, unless you really know what that style involves. And that's arguably, you know, I, I say Buchenrauch is my favorite beer that, that we make at Wolf's Ridge, but um, every once in a while I'll say Fire and Wasser is my favorite because Helleslager is one of my favorite styles. Um, and it drinks a little bit differently, but it's a little bit lighter, a little bit crisper. The smoke is um, more, a little bit sweeter and more subtle, uh, more of like an applewood kind of uh, sweetness to it, um, even though it is still 100% or close to 100% beechwood smoked malt in that beer. Um, and it also uniquely ties in, you know, I didn't bring it because we only have so much time and so much room for beer right now, but I didn't bring it today, but I should have maybe because it uniquely ties into the theme of German metal. Um, Fire and Wasser is the name of a Rammstein song. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Getting the honorable he mention. He should have brought it. He should have I guess I wasn't thinking deeply enough about it. When we were kind of talking during the break, Jamie, you were... You were asking about a variant of Buchenrauch that we've done a few yeah, times. Yeah, I feel like yeah. it may have had rye in it or something. And it was fennel seed, sausage. Maybe? Yeah, fennel seed or something. I don't yeah. know. Was, and this yeah. is very early in my experience with Wolf's Ridge, so this is a long time ago. So, you know, people make the association that Buchenrauch smells and tastes like bacon. And um, so that's one breakfast element. And I think... 2015 or 16, we were putting together a breakfast flight for, I don't know if it was St. Patty's Day or just because um, in our tap room. And so we had some different, you know, we had coffee beers and we had an orange beer and, you know, uh, you know, whatever. Some, I can't remember what all Scrambled was on the eggs. flight. Yeah, definitely not that. But <laughs> um, I was actually inspired by a beer that Jackie O's did years ago turning a smoked beer to to taste like breakfast sausage and usually breakfast sausage has some spice or herbs to it you may have like you know depending what the base sausage is if it's like an italian sausage or maybe some fennel notes to it so using buchenrauch as a base we infused it with fresh fennel actually and lavender 
So okay. lavender, dried lavender flowers. And lavender is a very uh, polarizing uh, or even off-putting uh, flavor in beer for a lot of people. But if you don't overdo it, I really adore the character it gives in huh. some beers. And then our kitchen, and I have this great resource in our world-class kitchen that we have at Wolf's Ridge. I asked them about using fennel in a beer, and my thought was to use fennel seed. And they immediately said, that's going to pull out all this bitterness in your beer. And so they were worried about using that. They said, we have fresh fennel that we're actually throwing in salads right now. So let's cook that down and add that to the beer. So they actually cooked fresh fennel roots in Buchenrauch. And then we cooled it and then added a small portion of the liquid and then all of the actual fennel root itself with a little bit of lavender flour into a keg of beer. And this is something we've only done on a keg level, keg by keg. Just like Buchenrock, it's still a smoked beer. It doesn't sell fast, but it's one of my favorite infusions of a beer that we've ever done at Wolf's Ridge, and it smells like breakfast sausage. We call it Linker Patty, and uh, you know it's it smells just like a you know a, a it's all coming back to breakfast me now. sausage patty. Yeah, so oh, that's amazing. And lavender is not a very intuitive ingredient for a breakfast patty sausage inspired beer. Yeah, sage would have probably been like spot on for like creating a flavor profile, but the lavender coupled with the smoke and the the fennel kind of just all coalesces and it smells right. Yeah. Are we Chris mentioned Rammstein. Do we have any other honorable mention German meddlers that we want to mention? I think Warlock is definitely to be noted with Dora Pesch. If you've never seen Dora Pesch, you should at least visit YouTube and check out some of those <laughs> She's videos. a rocker. And even if you're not into metal, you will enjoy those videos, I'm pretty sure. I think sure. even in latter years had a duet with Udo that got Whoa. kind of popular. So, yeah. I mean... As popular as popular can be amongst it's the metal community. There's no Lita Ford, Ozzy. Uh, That's right. Yeah. No, I, would, <laughs> I think probably better in the long run, but yeah. Well, yeah, you mentioned Rammstein. Not necessarily my flavor of metal, but clearly a huge band internationally. Yeah, a little more in the industrial metal vein. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only one that pops to my mind, Creator. Yeah, I think I mean, Creator and Sodom both were yeah. like... Yeah, there's my other, my second one, yeah. You know, I would see them live. I don't listen to them every day. Mm-hmm. But if they showed up at this festival, Thrash Metal has its place everywhere for me. They're playing in Columbus, Ohio. I would be interested in going. Ace of know. Cups would be the perfect spot, yeah, don't yeah. you think? Two bands, I think, have a place in the international metal scene outside of Germany. But other than that... I- Chris, you got any others you can think of? Not with any kind of history or recognition, I think, that would apply. Um, you know, we're talking about going to shows, and I was reminded of a show I went to years ago at the El Rosa Villa as a traveling tour called Pagan Fest. And so another subgenre of metal. Yep. Wait, no, wait a minute. Is Pagan Metal a uh, no, kind of so, subgenre of metal? Um, pagan, pagan Metal, I would say, well, maybe it's a sub-subgenre. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's there with Viking Metal, right? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, Viking Metal is, is kind of its own subgenre, but it was actually all like what would be considered folk metal bands, um, which are almost subsets of the Viking yeah. metal genre. Yeah, I can see that. But And so I guess what defines a folk metal band is they're from a non-American country using historically significant instruments to that culture, wherever they're from. And so there was a a German band there called Varg, you know, really heavy, like kind of modern 
thrash metal or you know it's been so long now like what instruments they were using but then you know there was a, a Finnish band there that has like an accordion and a couple different string instruments and there's a Taiwanese band that used some traditional Chinese instruments in their music and uh, but it otherwise sounds like pretty typical like modern American metal and so it's like really unique substyle and that tour has since kind of fallen apart but it was a lot of fun and um, they didn't have good beer there but they had mead um, maybe <laughs> wow. because of that Viking tie <laughs> and, and a lot of them they, they dress up in costumes and have face paint and whatnot and so I was listening to this like you know Viking metal subset of music drinking mead so and when else would you find mead at the El Rosa Villa so. <laughs> I was just going to say like a sentence most people have never said to me is oh I was enjoying some mead at the El Rosa Villa <laughs> <laughs> now that said was Varg a German singing band like in language yes yeah I believe they were a lot of the bands there were singing in English but yeah, I think they were singing in German yeah and that's one thing to be noted that we're dumb Americans mm-hmm. and we know this English language so there are a lot of German metal bands that we wouldn't know because they don't sing our language. It could be better than some that we brought today. But one funny thing happened to me at a party in Frankfurt, Germany, when there was a cover band, and they love to have these cover bands of American pop music for some reason. I was kind of talking to a group of people, and I'm trying to be as German as I possibly can. And I mentioned, man... Wouldn't it be great if they would play a Scorpion song? Well, everything dropped. I mean, everybody looked at me like... Record skipped. Hold on. Germans do not like the Scorpions? This is ridiculous. And I'm like, wait a minute. What are you talking about? Why wouldn't Germans love the Scorpions? This should be your national treasure. Nine? No one liked the Scorpions. And I'm like, even their mothers? You're saying no German likes Scorpions. That's ridiculous. I'll come to find out they love David Hasselhoff. So what are you going to do? This is so disappointing to me. It's so disappointing. I mean, it broke my heart that night. I think what, I what talk- is it? Genius isn't recognized in your own hometown. Yeah. Or something? <laughs> I mean, I, it's a- I suppose there could be a thing in like, if they choose to sing in a foreign language, people like, oh yeah, that's not really us. I don't know. If there was a band out of Akron that decided to sing in Swedish, I'm not sure how well they would be received. <laughs> that's a valid point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, did we ever truly appreciate David Hasselhoff in America? Oh, Absolutely did. not. His Only music? on Knight Rider, but oh, not his music. Rider, yeah, <laughs> but not his music. Do you listen to David Hasselhoff music? No, but Knight Rider that, that scores pretty high for me. So, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> duh. But that was Kit. That wasn't David. Yeah, exactly. How much was Hasselhoff, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. how much was Kit? That's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> and you'd have to say on Baywatch, the supporting cast might have been more important <laughs> yeah. than, than David Hasselhoff. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. Before we end, I do have to make one observation about the German music we've been talking about, and that is, if I'm not mistaken, all the German metal bands we've talked about, they're all from Ale Country. They're all from the North and the Northwest. And maybe that's not a mistake because that's a little bit more exposed to the outside world. Places like Hamburg, where Halloween is from, Mm -hmm. is a port city. That's where the Beatles Beatles went to Hamburg. Mm -hmm. So maybe Bavaria... Might be just a little too German to be producing a band that sings in English and does metal. It could be. But hey, this is our version of Oktoberfest. I'm very sad about the cancellation of Oktoberfest, but, you know, maybe we've got something going. And maybe next year we should send out some flyers and, uh, you know, get a a grounds. I would agree. uh, Maybe we could at least get cover bands. It wouldn't be bad. So Germans take note. 
Guys, it's been great to talk about German music and drink German beers. You know, I appreciate the invite. And let's get an org chart of all the sub, sub, sub genres <laughs> of heavy metal. <laughs> let's pair up some beers. And this could be the start of a very long series of podcasts. <laughs> we could absolutely do that, Jimmy. I like your thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. Chris, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I know uh, you guys have been doing this podcast for years, and it's great to be on. So. Yeah, right on. Fantastic right on. to have you. Thanks for listening, listeners, and Alf Wiedersehen. <laughs> Danke. <laughs>